Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Chaloner. The podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating the people who keep this country running. We exist to give people a voice outside of their own organisation and support leaders in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. If you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, please go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Joining me on today's programme, on a sunny but cool autumn day here in the capital, is Claire Horton. Claire is the Chief Executive of Battersea Dogs and Cats Home, one of the world's most famous animal rescue facilities and a UK national institution known and adored by millions of people. Uh, Claire, very warm welcome to yourself and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us. Good morning, Scott. I'm very, very happy to do so. It's such a pleasure welcoming you onto the uh, the programme uh, today, Claire. Um, and normally at this point in the show, we would dive straight into the subject of leadership directly and really bring that into focus. But considering the ongoing COVID-19 situation, I do feel it's appropriate we approach the topic from that angle because it has proven to be such a significant challenge for leaders within all walks of life. But in your line of work, of course, animal rescue and rehabilitation, how has it affected you and what you're doing? So it's had quite a, a significant impact on um, not just Battersea's, but the entire rescue sector's ability to mm. uh, to take in animals that desperately need us to obviously ensure that the levels of, of staff and volunteers are there to care for them um, and to find them homes and to get them out to homes. Most most um, notably, I think, because, of course, lockdown was a, a real problem for so many of us and and remain so all sorts of challenges around actually how you get people um, uh, into our centres to look at animals and and actually how we kind of find new ways of working around that and and look at different ways of getting animals out but actually it was very difficult particularly because of course in our London centre of the Battersea particularly where we have the best part of 300 animals and, and around about 300 staff, not just animal care staff but of course all the, the sort of head office staff that look after the money and the, the, the buildings and everything that goes with that um, was actually how we get them working from home effectively while still recognising that there are some people that you're going to have to bring into the organisation, into the site to look after the animals there. So um, all sorts of challenges about how you reduce numbers, how you get um, uh, animals out quickly and safely, how you can get people in safely on public transport predominantly during particularly the worst of the crisis. Um, and uh, and then ultimately how you, you manage that sort of communication between your teams uh, across the board. So um, challenges like all others, and, and particularly when you're looking after live animals, you can't just shut the buildings down and, and have nobody coming in. You certainly can't, can you? And um, it is an issue which could well persist for quite some time, these challenges, simply because even when hopefully we do have a working vaccine and the virus itself is no longer an issue, I think the prolonged anxiety that's going to be caused by the uh, the pandemic and also the confidence of people to sort of venture out and do everyday things, some of these challenges are still going to be lingering for quite some time and there may be a COVID hangover of sorts. Yeah, I, I think without a doubt there will be. You know, people are nervous 
about coming into places where you either need to travel on public transport mm. or you're going to be in close proximity with other people. You know, organisations like ours and indeed organisations across our sector around around the British Isles have had to find different ways of working. And in fact, we, we were we're pretty, pretty involved working with government at the earliest stages of, of a lockdown through March and April to look at writing the operating guidance for pet-related businesses or rescue organisations so that they could, where possible, carry on operating, um, help people who were really in need of assistance. So there are, of course, lots of people out in the community who uh, were having challenges with their animals who needed some help. We wanted uh, to be able to ensure that we could continue servicing those people, helping them where they needed it, getting animals in, getting animals out. And so everybody had to find different ways of working and that included things like sounds sounds a little bit ridiculous but actually home delivery of animals so doing a lot of things that you Mm. would normally do face to face with people um uh, on site actually remotely or virtually so finding those ways to uh to help people uh, through the sort of vetting process if you like to, to to get an animal um and then actually delivering those animals directly to people's homes whilst maintaining social distancing and all of the relevant safety aspects of that um uh, but it worked pretty well actually mm. and i think as a sector we've been able to really help people cope with um challenges at home with their own animals as well as taking in those that um that couldn't cope Seems it's been a very interesting time as to sort of how the sector has adapted to cope with this uh, new reality. And there are some ingenious ways that it's certainly done so by the sounds of it. Um, one thing that I certainly uh, do have to ask uh, Claire um, about um, all of this as well, just for maybe one or two worried pet owners out there that may be listening to this. Is there any tangible risk based on the speculation of transmission of COVID-19 between human to animal and vice versa at all, based on your knowledge? There are a couple of cases of um, uh, cats that have contracted coronavirus from their very sick owners who have who have themselves had coronavirus, and these are very you know, literally two cases uh, in the world. And uh, you know, I think one case of a dog somewhere um, in Europe in the early stages of coronavirus. But the evidence says that uh, that animals do not transmit coronavirus to their owners or to people. But what um, can happen, like um, like every other surface, an animal coat is a surface. So what I think in these cases um, has been has been the cause of the animal getting um It certainly seems as if the industry has been on an incredible journey to deal with the challenges of COVID and get round the uh, the issue of having to conduct services remotely, as you say there, Claire. Very fascinating um, indeed. Now, I do have to ask this next question just in the interest of those worried pet owners out there that might be tuning into our podcast today. Um, given the speculation about sort of human to animal trans- transmission of COVID-19 and vice versa, based on your experience of that, is there actually any tangible risk? No, there isn't. I think the evidence is showing that um, there has been one cat in uh, in the British Isles that contracted coronavirus from its owner, um, as its owner was actually very sick and spent um, very considerable time in close proximity to the cat. Um, 
but it doesn't transmit the other way around. So we're not seeing anywhere um, uh, animals actually transmitting the virus to their owners at all. However, what we are saying to people is be aware that an animal that moves around the home or moves between people can potentially, like any other surface, carry the virus on its coat as a, as a sort of, mm. um, you know, sort of transmitting surface, if you like, like a door handle or a, or a work surface. And so what we have said is, you know, if you are exhibiting symptoms and you live with other people and you're trying to self-isolate from them, don't then spend time cuddling up to your animal and let it move freely between people. Um, or if you do, use a you know a sort of pet-friendly disinfectant wipe to uh, to just wipe the animal over between people, as you would do on any other surface in the home, be it a tray or a door handle or whatever. That certainly makes uh, perfect sense. Now, every time we have somebody on the uh, the program normally to discuss these um, issues, Claire, I always like to touch on the uh, the mental health side of leadership and how they've been sort of managing from that point of view, because the pandemic has thrust the importance of those issues back into the limelight. Now, I can imagine in your line of work where most of the people that you work with are exposed to animals that they're looking after every single day. I can imagine that that actually helps alleviate the social isolation elements of lockdown enormously. Well, yeah, I mean, it, having an animal is, has been incredibly uh, um, uh, helpful for so many people, not just people working in animal rescue, but actually people at home. And we did a we did a survey actually across the across the country, wanting to know what um, benefits uh, rescue animals or pets have brought to their owners. And seventy five percent of those people said that their pets had really helped rescue them during lockdown. So, you know, I, I don't think we should underestimate the support that, that animals have, um, you know, on the people that, that, that love and, and, and own them. But certainly as, a, as, a, as an organisation, as a sector, we're very conscious. We work in a highly emotional and very um, sort of um, quite distressing environment very often. And the mental health and, and resilience of our people is really important. And it's been particularly tough um, for those actually coming in and still working directly with the animals. They've been, I think, perhaps a lot, you know, they've, they've had the company of others, they've had the company of animals. But for, certainly for Battersea, with 350 people working from home mm. um, for the best part of nearly, well, nearly eight months now, isn't it? Um, that's been harder. And I think as an organisation and certainly as a leader, we have to be very conscious of how we look after those people. You know, what are we doing to keep in contact with them? How are we engaging them? How are we recognising that people are are very often sitting in, in small rooms, some people working off their floors, some people at kitchen tables um, or in crowded households or actually on their own. And, and, and there are so many different scenarios that you're trying to trying to support people in and, and, and manage them through. So, you know, mental health well-being has been a big focus for us, keeping people connected, you know, mm. sort of weekly webinars and, 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 and stuff, as well as things like book clubs and, uh, you know, the choir, the, you know, sort of the Battersea Warblers have all been meeting on a regular basis via Zoom. And, and I think that's been a lifesaver for many. Mm. Do you think that it is um, possible for um, such a great portion of Battersea's workforce to be working from home for the long term or will it have to be the case eventually that you'll see these people returning to the premises in vogue just because of the debate around our working practices and what is to become of this in future i think there's an awful lot of learnings from covid that that, that many organizations will be taking away and some of that is about different ways of working and, and flexible working in particularly so you know we will be 
carrying on the ability for people to work from home where possible, if roles allow, for some part of the week. And I think what we're trying to do is try and find a way to give people a better work-life balance. So removing the commute from some people is going to be really helpful if they can do that a day a week, then that's great, let's do that. Because I think what we've seen through this uh, pandemic, and I'm not talking now about front-facing animal care staff because that absolutely really does need to be done on that sort of physical face-to-face centre basis. But, um, but for all of the support staff, those people working in all of those other teams, including marketing, fundraising, etc., you know, that's actually working very effectively on a remote basis. Now, from a from a from a I think a really functional and organisational health perspective, that's not good to do that on mass permanently. But we have adapted really well. People have been fantastic in adopting new ways of working. Um, and the technology and our fantastic tech team have been fantastic in really actually ensuring that we've been supported with all the IT needs that we need. So we've not seen a drop in productivity, but what we are seeing is, or I should say what we are missing is probably that sort of personal connectivity, those mm. inter-team, um, you know, sort of bashing things around, really sharing ideas and, and the innovation side of things is probably hit. So longer term, we will be um, working differently. You know, I think we're all a lot more agile and quicker at decision-making than we ever were. Mm. Um, but there still is no way to get around the fact that you still need to bring, I think, to keep the culture, the, you know, the, the, the sense of, of community working bringing people back and having them working together. Mm, of course, that's the uh, the big thing, um, which basically means that businesses and other organisations do need to keep some sort of physical premises there because that human-to-human yeah. contact, that collaboration is something that is so, so valued. Um, now, thinking about the future in a little bit more detail, just before we do wrap things up on the show, Claire, because I'm conscious that our time is now beginning to draw to its close. We know that over the course of the year, the next 12 months, for a good portion of it at least, we're going to have to continue to persist with what's being called the new normal and how we live and how we work. But as we grapple with those challenges, and hopefully within the next year, we do also have a working vaccine and can start to leave the COVID-19 situation behind a little bit. What is it that you're really hoping to achieve at Battersea and where do you see yourselves being this time in a year? Well, I think one of the things that we've missed um, significantly is our ability to interact with our supporters, the public at large, particularly through the big public events that we hold. Um, you know, it's our 160th anniversary this year, all of those celebration events, all of the mass participation sort of muddy dog obstacle course challenges that would have had 10,000 people running for that have had to be cancelled. Um, I really need that to all start up again. Ultimately, we are losing millions of pounds in income this year because we've not been able to get out there and fundraise. Um, we've not been able to work with our supporters. And of course, ultimately, we've seen a huge reduction in the number of animals um, coming in, uh, which is good news in a sense, because actually that means they're staying in homes and people are loving them. But our ability to work with more animals has been curtailed simply by this by this situation. So I think what I need to see in a year's time is um, I need us to be out there uh, doing events and getting back together facing front facing with our supporters. Um, that's important from keeping the organisational long long term, um, you know, sort of in the public eye. 
We need to be able to uh, get more dogs and cats in and out of our premises so that we're helping more of them and we're working um, much more further afield with organisations around the sector to do that. So, um, you know, and I need people back in back in our buildings and back in our centres. And I certainly need our London centre running back up at full capacity because out there there are an awful lot of animals that need us um, and we just need to be able to get people in to help them. Exactly right. And I certainly wish you all the luck in the world in making that possible because it is so, so, so important to animal welfare during this time. And it would be awful if, of course, um, the capacity to deal with um, those uh, services and uh, help animals uh, could be compromised um, in any way by all of this. And I actually think, Claire, just given how enlightening it's been welcoming you onto the programme today to discuss the issues that COVID has brought upon the industry, it would be wonderful to catch up at some point in the next year and welcome you back onto our programme just to actually see how things are coming along within the recovery and hopefully we've come a long way in the time between by the time that we speak again well thank you scott i'd be very happy to do that be delighted to share that with you it would be wonderful uh, for me to welcome you back on claire and i really hope there'll be some positive news to share at that point and we won't be stuck in this rut for too much longer um in the meantime until we do hopefully get to speak again please do take care and stay safe with everything still going on and that goes to everybody associated with battersea and not just the humans as well Thank you very much. It was a real pleasure for me to welcome Claire Horton, Chief Executive of Battersea Dogs and Cats Home, onto today's programme. And I would also reiterate that last message there to every single one of our listeners. Please do continue to be sensible with the lifting of restrictions. Look after yourselves, stay well, consider others. It makes such a key difference in saving lives. Um, Coming up next on the show today, we're going to be joined by England's 1966 FIFA World Cup hat-trick hero, Sir Jeff Hurst, who enjoyed a distinguished football career and scored over 200 professional league goals for clubs including West Ham United and Stoke City among others. Of course he remains most renowned for the fact that he is the only man to this day to have scored a hat-trick in a World Cup final and that came after his treble in England's 4-2 triumph over West Germany at the old Wembley Stadium 54 long years ago now. So Jeff will be joining the programme to look back on some of the highlights of his career, the importance of robust leadership throughout and leaving a message of thanks for our wonderful NHS who have been instrumental during this very difficult time. So Jeff will be joining us very shortly. And now, ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, we extend a very warm welcome to a special guest in Sir Jeff Hurst, who joins us on the programme today. Um, Sir Jeff, good morning. Good morning. How are you? Very good, thank you. It certainly is a uh, wonderful uh, day for it, isn't it? It is. The weather's pretty good at the moment. I hope may, may it last. Absolutely. Thunderstorm, it's, it's lovely. It is certainly after a storm. And um, speaking of storms, actually, I'd like to start with just a hypothetical scenario. If we imagine if we fast forward two years, Sir Jeff, let's imagine it's December 2022 and it's the World Cup final and England are there. We could be playing defending champions France. We could be playing the Germans, anybody. And England are 2-0 up in the 90th minute. So victory is all but guaranteed. And Harry Kane, with a brace to his name already, is brought down in the penalty area. So he has the opportunity to make history by emulating yourself and becoming only the second ever player to score a World Cup final hat-trick. Would you honestly want him to bury it or would you prefer him to fluff his lines? I'd want him to bury it. Um, I've asked that question, I get that question asked a bit. Um, I've had a good run uh, with this record and Goodness me, that's how it's nearly 60 years, I guess, if, if uh, we're looking at 2022. No, I'd want him to bury it. A, a for him, he's a fantastic player, uh, tremendous goal scorer. And if anybody, I'd like to um, 
repeat what I achieved, uh, it will be someone like Harry, who's a f- fantastic professional with, with Spurs in England. So absolutely. And I want England to do well. I mean, I I'm want England to be successful. I, I'm an England supporter. I'm a football supporter. And I just, I really want the country to do well in, in anything, in, in all sports, and particularly in my sport. So I will not want to bury it. And I'll be absolutely, I will be as delighted as anybody in, in the country um, if, if he can achieve that. But, but more importantly, that England, England have achieved what we achieved all those years ago. And it's important that the team uh, do it as opposed to Harry doing it individually. Mm. And that's how I felt about my. Uh, my achievements about the team being successful, whether I got two or three, in one sense is, is uh, wouldn't say immaterial, but it's about the team winning. It's all about the team. Mm. Exactly. Consideration of the wider team is a cornerstone of leadership, which is, of course, what the Leaders' Council is all about, recognising that and promoting that for the future. But if we sort of flash back 54 years to that moment in 1966, when you were bearing down on goal, I understand that a lot of people always ask you the question about whether you actually knew there were people on the pitch at the time. And there's quite a bit of a joke about that. But there's something else that I'm actually interested in. I understand we all know what happened. The ball nestled in the top corner. England won 4-2 and lifted the World Cup. But you've often described that as being a mishit finish sometimes before, haven't you? Yes, I think people... Um, I, I've, I, I, I recall exactly what's amazing. I can recall exactly what I was thinking. Um, at that moment, obviously a crucial moment in, in the game towards the end of the game. I knew the game was nearly finished. I, as the ball came to me initially, I was actually, with my back to goal, I was actually looking at the referee uh, 10 yards from me in the middle of the park and he was waving, at the whistle in his mouth, but waving play on with both arms, indicating quite clearly, of course, that the game was nearly finished. So when I got to the edge of the box, I'm, I now think of the game is nearly finished. I'm thinking, if the game's nearly finished, I'm now going to whack this ball with everything I've got left. But I'm thinking if it goes beyond the beyond the sand into the crowd by the time the ball boy gets it back to uh, Hansfield Kowski the German keeper by that time surely the game has got to be over but as I always jokingly say uh, I miss hit it and it and it flew in but I was thinking about wasting time not so much about uh, but certainly what I was going to do which, which sorry, I was going to hit it as hard as I possibly could after those two hours and it just goes to show sometimes that hit and hope taking a punt can sometimes be the way forward because I think it shows that in any form of leadership, be it in sport or in business, you can't go sometimes without taking risks. Absolutely, yes, absolutely. Yes, I mean, I wasn't in that position with risk in a sense because the game was unfinished, but that that philosophy is right. You're just going to, uh, there's an element of, of, of risks uh, of making this, but it's going to be a control on that risk, not, not stupid risks in, in mm. all walks of life an element of maybe doing something that you're not too sure about. But sometimes in life, you've got to have a go. You can't get be successful in terms of long-term leadership if you're just always sitting on the fence and not taking any chances. I don't think that's where the great leaders will get to by having that kind of philosophy. You've got to move forward. And the last time that you actually joined us on the Leaders' Council podcast and spoke with my colleague, Jonathan White, uh, Sir Jeff, was back in February, of course. And that was a point where we knew a little bit about COVID-19, which was looming, but that was before it really took hold in the UK and really turned our world upside down. And before that, this summer was meant to be all about the England national team once again, who were going to the European Championships. But that's in a way now been replaced by 
the National Health Service and we've been supporting the health service and applauding their efforts and we're hanging out thank you banners displaying drawings of rainbows very much in the same vein that you'd see the George Cross adorning most households during a major tournament year. Do you feel there are parallels between the sense of national unity that we've discovered during this time and the spirit of 1966? Oh, absolutely. Particularly the, the recognition of the NHS with what they're doing. And I think it was a great idea uh, during that period where they asked everybody to stand outside their houses and clap and congratulate the NHS for what they were going through. And I think it's, it's been criticism in the past, of course, the NHS on how it's run, whether there's enough, enough funding for it. And so on, but really, we begin to realise during these turbulent times how absolutely vital and important it is to have a health service that works efficiently, and to see individually the the amount of people who are interviewed almost every day on the t- terrible circumstances they were having to work under with with masks and so on, and and also into what was also for me fantastic all these people from different countries all over the world that were working in our country uh, with the same u- u- union to, to be successful and uh, help people to survive uh, COVID. And very heartwarming. And I think that kind of feeling, I, I probably, as a player in 66, I probably wasn't aware at that time of the unity of the country. I've learned that over the years when I talk to people um, who were about 66 and they will tell you what a great day it was and where they were remembered exactly what they were doing and the fantastic stories. So that identified then as that great unification of the country, 30 million plus viewers, the biggest view, TV viewing audience we've had. So today, um, it's certainly uh, through this pandemic and the NHS has been absolutely magnificent and every single person, uh, some very fantastic and heartwarming stories of how they're dealing with this unbelievably uh, difficult situation from a health perspective, uh, fantastic. So that was really heartwarming to get out and cheer and clap on the balcony um, for the NHS, fantastic. Mm, certainly inspiring what we've been seeing uh, from the uh, the front line as well. And flashing back just to 1966 again, just from a leadership point of view, um, the manager that made all of that possible and oversaw yourself and your teammates on the, ro- the road to the World Cup was, of course, Sir Alf Ramsey. What sets somebody like him or Ron Greenwood apart from other coaches? Because I understand that both men had a profound impact on you, not just as a player, but also as a person as well. Well, I think that, I was very fortunate. <laughs> You're talking about going to the, the, the fortunate in your life to be at, at the time when I was physically at my at my best during those those, those years. Um, born earlier or later, I wouldn't have been around uh, physically enough, and clever enough, and technically good enough to, to be a rat, to be a, a good player. But at that time, I'm involved with arguably the greatest coach um, we've seen in this country, Harry Redknapp who's been around a long time, would still say he's, he's the best coach he has worked with. And this is, that's 50 years having been in the business plus. And then moving on to, to having a, a national level, a great manager. Uh, and the two coincided in a sense because Ron Greenwood always always said that and felt that he, as a, as a, a coach of a League One club, uh, or Premier League as it is today, it's, it's important you prepare the and teach and coach the players to be to prepare to be playing in the best company, playing for England. And so he prepared us to be playing for England. And then Alf Ramsey 
knew the players to pick. Um, discipline was his big skill, making sure those players were disciplined uh, in the right formation. Uh, so the two combined, moving from one to the other, uh, how, how can you possibly be as, as fortunate um, as, as I was? It was just uh, amazing. So I think Ron was, I think there are two different aspects of football in terms of leadership. You've got a, you've got a, a coach, it's a team coach, who's a teacher effectively, and you've got the other kind of character who's a, who's a manager, who manages people, may not be quite so good technically on the coaching aspects, but by that stage, a wrong reason of passing a coach person to Alf, who's then managed from a discipline point of view, because you're managing people from the whole country. You're not just managing a club. You're managing people, uh, different characters, and, and all over the, the country is, is slightly more demanding job in that respect. So you've got to hone that lot of all over, different characters, strengths, players, into a unit to play for, uh, to represent England. So Alf Ramsey was, was very good at that. His discipline was, was fantastic. So the com- combination of the two, uh, you can't say I can't be as, I'm so blessed to be as fortunate as I was to come across these two fantastic uh, uh, people in my life, in my, in my football life. And I suppose for every Sir Alf Ramsey and Ron Greenwood um, as well that you have worked with, there are also coaches out there that one might work with that perhaps might not get the best out of players during their, um, of course, their peak. But just, of course, just but just as much as you can learn from, of course, coaches that do get the best out of players, you can learn as much from less effective leaders as you can from good ones as well, because that experience can ultimately mould you as a person, can't it? Oh yes, I think it, yes, I think leadership is important and coaching and teaching is important. Um, and, and the great teachers and coaches and managers ha- have that skill. Sometimes it's an innate skill in, in management. They have it. But I think um, you you can learn, if you're central enough, to learn from people who are uh, teaching you or coaching you. It's not the right way to go about teaching you or coaching or managing you. You can learn uh, from that. If you're a player, you can learn what you think is a good coach or what you think is a good manager, which you can take into your career after playing into uh, coaching or management. So you can learn as much from people making mistakes. You can learn also from making your own mistakes. Mm. You can do something in the past that think, well, like, that was a really stupid thing today and I'll make sure I'm not going to do that again. And it, it is important in all of life. You learn from your mistakes. People will make mistakes. Uh, young people will make mistakes. But it's learning. It's the silly people who make mistakes and don't learn from it, continue making those same mistakes throughout their life and becoming maybe unsuccessful throughout their, their career. Completely understand exactly where you're coming from. I think it's almost impossible to become an effective leader in our profession without having that learning curve of making mistakes and learning from them exactly. Um, During your conversation um, with Jonathan back in February, um, Sir Jeff, I know that you and him discussed at length some of the big inspirations and influences on you throughout your career and throughout adulthood. But I understand that your love for football and obsession with the sport actually started a lot earlier even if you were toing and fro between football and cricket somewhat at the time. I read somewhere that during your teenage years, you were once fined one pound for disturbing the peace after consistently kicking a football into a neighbour's garden. Is that true? <laughs> Not many people know that, as the saying goes. Yeah, that's absolutely true. We, in, in those uh, medieval days, you, there were, you weren't football pitches or place very rarely where you could play. You, um, in our road in Greenway, as it was called in Chelmsford, we, that three or four lads, <coughs> lived quite, quite close to it. It's a cul-de-sac, it's not a big long road, um, with a round, with a circle at the bottom. So there wasn't a great deal of traffic anyway, maybe because it was a 
a cul-de-sac, and B, because there weren't as many cars, no, there as many cars in those days. So uh, we played across, across the across the road, um, and you used to have to learn to chip the ball above the pavement to hit the uh, the goal at the back. The goal was about a, a two foot wide semicircular where the tree where a tree was planted. That was the goal, and so it's a free ball play football but amongst those houses where we lived and played there was a, a family and a, a boy that didn't play football um, I think he he was interested in uh, flying you know and gl- making balsa wood gliders and uh, nice guy but just didn't, didn't play football and on this particular garden uh, of course occasionally the ball finished up there and crazily enough they um, took us to court and uh we actually got fined. This is absolutely true. We got fined a pound for kicking the ball in the neighbour's garden. Astounding when you think about it, isn't it? Mm. And when you there's nowhere else to play apart from the street, and uh, well, you were actually. But that that happens. That happens. You'll you'll hear stories. We see stories of neighbours falling out over different things. You see those those stories every day. But that was certainly a true story. Absolutely, absolutely true. And during that time, um, who was it during childhood that you really looked up to that you thought was an inspiration to you and made you really think that going into professional sport was going to be the route for you? Well, my father was obviously the, the, the biggest inspiration for me because he was an ex-player. He, he played uh, lower down for Oldham Rochdale. We actually moved south from Manchester. We lived, we lived, I was born in Ashton under line. We actually moved south to Chelmsford when I was... Pr- probably I was the eldest of three when I was probably about seven or eight into this particular street uh, called Greenways. And he, what he did with me, I think was a, a big influence going back to that third gold in the world cup in many years in the back garden. And when we moved on to it, we moved up market to a council house somewhere in Chelmsford and he would have me in the back garden teaching me to kick with my left foot. And so I, at that time, and even today, it's, it's, uh, you don't see that many players that are uh, completely two-footed, and I was. Maybe not as two-footed as Bobby Charlton. Even Jack Charlton, his brother, didn't know which was his best foot. He, he was fantastic. But I was pretty pretty um, um, two-footed. And a lot of the hat-tricks I scored were one right, one left, and a header. So um, he, had, he had a huge influence. I wasn't, I wasn't a child, although I had a football, footballing father, I wasn't a child whose father pushed him into being a footballer. He, he um, and what happened with my, my story is a friend of my father, I know the guy's name, called Jock Redfern, unbeknownst to me, he wrote to two clubs uh, for a trial. He wrote to Arsenal and he wrote to West Ham United when I was just after school leading age. Uh, West Ham uh, replied, they asked me to come for a trial. Um, I went for a trial with them and uh, they saw something in me and took me on the what was called the ground staff then, uh, almost at school living age. And uh, so I wasn't necessarily thinking I've got to go into football. It's just that that's how it, how it happened. Uh, although I enjoyed football and I was pretty reasonably good, there was no big focus on me uh, as a great schoolboy player. Nobody was scouting me or uh, you know writing to my parents saying, come and have a trial at this club or that club. Uh, but a friend of my father um, wrote the letter. So that's, that's how it happened. The problem I had during those early years, I enjoyed cricket as well, and I was messing about, as I, I kind of put it, between the two sports, which was hugely detrimental to me in my early, early development, either as a cricketer or either as a footballer. And it wasn't until Ron Greenwood um, miraculously 
try me. I was a midfield player then, or centre half at school. Um, he uh, said, "I'm going to try you up front." He put me up front in the game, and then my, my whole football career and life changed dramatically. And I suppose as well, what might have also done it for football as opposed to cricket was that fateful match uh, for Essex over in Egberth against Lancashire, wasn't it? Yes, a lot of people know that. Uh, one game, uh, one game. The sort of went messing about between the two. I had one first-class game for Essex, as you said, Egberth in um, in Liverpool, and I think I got Norton and Norton not out. I think something I we won the game. Funny, I thought a couple of catches, but uh, Essex actually won the game. Um, v Lancashire up up in their territory, but that was that was a real problem for me. I think I could have done some advice maybe earlier to say make your mind up. But when you look back, when even today cricket goes through till what September, whereas football starts in July, so there's a huge overlap. And I'm still playing cricket until September, missing pre-season, early games for those two or three years. Extremely detrimental to me doing well at one or the other. Uh, until Ron Green would just put me up front, and that was it. And from a standing start, I think my first season around I think September October I, I played my first game up front against Liverpool and I think I played about 23-24 games no 27-28 games and scored 14 goals like one in two from a standing start for a, mm. a midfield player so um, quite changed dramatically um, that was 62-63 season the three years before the World Cup and when we think about leadership in football, the role of a goalkeeper, of course, not related to your own career, is to essentially build from the back and command this penalty area. And one goalkeeper that you played with, not just for England, but also for Stoke City in the later years in your career, was Gordon Banks. I have to confess, as a boyhood Port Vale supporter, I am relieved that incredible talents like yourself and Gordon are no longer occupying the dressing room there. And I did have the fortune of meeting Gordon when I was a young boy as well. But... What was Gordon like as a leader on the field? Well, first of all, he, he was a great... Uh, two things for Gordon. He was a, a great keeper. Um, I would still say the greatest English keeper we've ever had uh, and one of the best keepers in the world. Um, absolutely fantastic. Funny enough, I didn't realise... It's funny how you look at... I see when Gordon passed away, naturally, you know, sadly, um, a few months ago, and obviously it's showing a lot of videos of Banksy, the programs about Banksy and the great saves he made and the save against Pelé and so on. But I didn't realise how um, athletic he was, uh, how quick he was, athletic, um, springing forward to smother balls, and not just sitting balls. Agility-wise, he was absolutely fantastic. But as a character, he was a joker. He was a, a very kind, very mild-mannered, lovely lovely man, the nicest guy you can possibly wish to meet. But he was a joke. He always had a, a joke for you. Every time you met sometime, he'd have a new joke. And uh, people um, talk about him and who are close to him and remembered what a what a, um, a joke he was. And they're the two things that really stick out for, Man- for Banksy. And we were very lucky, very lucky, of course, to have that kind of and you need that kind of quality um, as a world-class player. When you win a World Cup, you need four or five players, which we were very fortunate to have in our team. Um, uh, Banks is one of the world-class players, along with Bobby Moore and, and Bobby Charlton. Uh, Jimmy Greaves didn't play with a world-class player, in, but in the squad, and Ray Wilson, our left back, I'd always argue, was a world-class player. So you need that kind of quality initially if you're going to be successful in winning a World Cup, some world-class players. And Banks, he was up there, w- w- not with the best, the best for me 
And another thing from during your days at Stoke City as well was that a talented but then troubled young midfielder by the name of Alan Hudson first joined the uh, the club around uh, the early 70s. And I know that you were asked to take him in as a lodger to provide him with a stable home during his spell there by then-manager Tony Waddington. Now, I've spoken to a great many directors and executives on this programme before, and all of them describe trust as being a key cornerstone of leadership. How did it feel for you knowing that Waddington trusted you to that degree to ask that of you? Well, I was extremely flattered. It was a huge compliment that he saw me as a, and of course, over the years, hopefully that that had come out. That's important that uh, you have those kind of qualities as a player that, A, he saw when I was at West Ham and B, obviously acquired me to play at Stoke City. So I was was initially first fairly surprised, I think it's, (laughs) And certainly, my wife was fairly surprised when I when I said I need her permission for for me to um, uh, allow Alan Hudson to stay with us in that, those early periods. But what he saw, of course, in me was, uh, which is, I can see in myself, I was, I was a very disciplined person, a very disciplined player, which you have to be. I didn't really have, I would say, the qualities of the world class players like the Bobby Charles and the Jimmy Green and the Bobby Moores. So uh, you need to have bring all the other characteristics to be successful at, at that level, to compete in their level. And discipline was one of them. And, and um, obviously, Tony Waddington saw that. And if he wanted to put, he trusted me that I was disciplined enough to hopefully push some of my discipline into Alan Hudson, which we did. And um, in those early six months and year, a couple of years, he was come up a bit heavier from Chelsea. He lost a bit of weight. And uh, although he was a little bit indisciplined himself, hence they needed him to, to stay with me, what he was was a fantastic player. He is uh, was he is one of the, the, the most fantastic players I think I've come across. The, across, but not hit the best because I think he was a certain uh, slightly bit of ill discipline within his, his general life. And you need at the top, and I'm talking at the top being, being an England player. But I compare him purely on ability compared with ability up in the France Beckenbauer mould mm. without any shadow of a doubt. He, he was that good. So it was a bit of fun and enjoyable times. Uh, getting uh, serving Alan Hudson the cups of tea about eight o'clock at night when we had our tea at our home for those uh, those few months, and I think he, it was a, a big help to getting Alan back on track and performing brilliantly for the club. And following on from your days with the uh, the Potters, you went on, of course, to play football in Ireland and the United States before the end of your career. Did you feel that the dressing room and indeed leadership culture at those clubs differed from perhaps what you've been used to back in England? Um, well, I think Ireland was just a short spell with, with Cork Celtic, so it's hard to judge and make any comparisons. And of course, in, in, in America, it was the early days of, um, of football in America, uh, and I thoroughly enjoyed my time at, at Seattle, so it's difficult to make a, uh, a comparison. I think I was fortunate at West Ham it was a great time of the globe and I was fortunate to play with Stoke City uh, for three years and it was a fantastic time for that particular club they won of course the uh, the the League Cup before I went there mm. sadly they knocked us out in the semi-final so it was a, a marvellous time for, for that particular club and very close we actually I think we played Ajax in, in the, in the following year in, in Europe I think we only lost on, on a goal over two, over the two games against Ajax so it was a great time for the club so I'm very fortunate to have played uh, for, for those two clubs. Only a short spell at West Brom, of course, but I think, uh, as, as I always jokingly say, 
I think I was past my uh, sell-by date then. Um, West Brom was a fantastic club, but I was I wasn't at my best, and I felt it was time to retire, which I did. And Johnny Giles was in charge then. I think uh, West West Brom actually got up that year, but I've made very little contribution to that success that I've had. So um, yes, it, uh, the, the American experience was just fantastic. I never saw it long term being over there. That was a, a, a brilliant few months with my wife and um, uh, two daughters, and my wife and she was uh, pregnant with her third daughter over there. So that was that was a good time. It's completely different. Ireland was just a just a. I always joke about Ireland. I was there for about I think a month. I think it was, and I enjoyed the experience. And I earned a few quid, and I think it paid for, for the kitchen in one of my houses back in England. <laughs> New kitchen. <laughs> So it certainly went really well. I suppose in the waning days of um, your career, um, was it humbling that you realised that people were beginning to actually look up to you and be inspired by you as a legend, as in perhaps the same way that you were looking to the likes of Bobby Moore earlier on in your career? Yes, I think it. I think the that kind of uh, whatever the word correct word is, I don't know, being looked at and revered, sort of comes. Maybe, maybe longer. Maybe in longer, not some sort of immediately after you finish playing, but in the long term. When um, uh, and I always joke with people, introduce me either to other people or introduce me on stage as a legend. And, and I always jokingly say, you, you only start being called a legend when you're over seventy. And I think the, the whatever the word is, I'm not sure, adulation or recognition or whatever it sort of happens and you think more about it or it happens and occurs more in later years. Not, not certainly, um, I felt during the time after I finished playing or managing or playing for England during my football career. And I think I, I went into business for 20 years. I don't think anybody looked necessarily looked at me when I was in business as necessarily a legend or somebody they could look up. So I, I felt that kind of attitude probably has happened in, in my later years, probably. For those younger generations, just lastly, Sir Jeff, before we do wrap things up, um, for people who are aspiring to become leaders in business, politics, sport, or indeed any walk of life, if you could offer any advice to them based upon your experience, what advice would you give them? Simple advice in, in, in a sentence is really, I learned a lot from Alf Ramsey. He was, a, he was a boss. I think a boss sometimes has, has natural characteristics. You can learn about management on management courses. But there's certain characteristics when the successful bosses is, is within them to start with. But one of the things I learned from Alfred Ramsey, because I've taken into my, my business life and even my fa- uh, talking to my family life, if you're involved in business, is when you're managing people, you manage them as a group. Anybody that doesn't want to be part of that group, you find is, is, is backing against what you want to achieve as a boss, you move them out. And I think that's the simple, one of the most simple uh, lessons I've learned during the Alfred Ramsey period. Even some of the great players, I felt should have been in the squad possibly at, at the time without mentioning names. Um, and you hear stories about this player not, you know, completely complying with everything, and they're, they're left out or they're not even in the squad. And I felt that was, and even some with great ability, I, I think probably didn't make it. And I think a lot of it stems down to they didn't want to be, they wanted to be, you know, a lone champion, successful person, didn't want to be part of of the group. So that, that for me is the, the key message, the single key message I would pass on to anybody who wants to manage a group of people in any walk of life. 
ties in very nicely with a quote from one Nelson Mandela, in fact, that surround yourself with people who are better than you are in some ways. And I think that is incredibly sound advice indeed. Yes, it is. Very good. Good advice. Yes. So, Jeff, thank you ever so much for joining us on the uh, the program this morning. It's been an absolute pleasure having you with us to discuss your life, career and leadership. And it would be a pleasure to welcome you back on the program in future to discuss further. Pleasure. Thank you. Enjoy, enjoy being part of the program. Thank you. Likewise, thank you ever so much for your time again. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.